singing the carols. We love singing the carols, don't we? That's primarily what we're going to be doing on Christmas Eve. But I thought we'd start out this sermon with the, the words of a Christmas carol that really is a call to worship. O come, all ye faithful. So if you're faithful out there, you're being asked to, to come. O come, all ye faithful. We're being invited to come to the manger scene to look back at that point in history. Come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Two ways, joyful and triumphant. If I had to guess, I bet you there's a lot of people coming in today joyful, probably not as many people coming in triumphant. I think there is a spirit of defeat that is settling upon the church and upon our country and upon the world today. But we should not be in that category. We are to come joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold Him. What does the word behold mean? Behold doesn't just mean to look at, it means to set your gaze upon. That's what I want to do in the sermon today is come to the manger, set our gaze, focus our attention, fix the eyes of our mind and our heart and our souls on this baby Jesus. Come, let us adore Him. So what do we adore when we come to Jesus? Well, this is what we've been looking at the last two weeks. When we look in the manger, we adore the innocence that is represented in baby Jesus. Innocence. Innocence extended to us. An innocence like we've never seen anywhere else on the planet before, an innocence that is imputed into our being. You know, when you're trying to get your children to obey, there's two tacks you can take. You can threaten punishment, or you can appeal to their standing. So for instance, I come into my room and I see magic marker drawings all over the wall. I assume Cece's been in there. And I can get her to obey by threatening punishment. Don't do that. If you do that again, there's going to be consequences. But if I were to come in and I found out that Lainey, my oldest, was the one who drew all over my walls, I wouldn't threaten punishment, would I? I would take that other tact. I would say, Lainey, I would appeal to her standing. Lainey, you're almost an adult now. A year from now, you'll be living on your own. You should be beyond this. You should not be behaving like a little child. And which do you think Jesus, God, uses for us when He's asking us to obey? It's that second one. He's saying, you have been given My innocence. You've been given My righteousness. You've been given My Spirit. Why are you still acting as if you didn't have any of that? So we see innocence when we come and behold the manger and we adore the innocent Jesus. We adore the dependent Jesus, what we looked at last week where we see just what a tremendous model of dependence. Jesus put Himself in a position of absolute vulnerability. And He modeled for us. In our deficiency, we become more dependent on our Father. Perhaps more than anything else, though, when we look at baby Jesus, we are assured of this. We are assured of his, his acquaintance with us. That He is one of us. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 4, 
You'll see in verse 4, it says, but when the fullness of time had come. So just right when, when everything was ripe for this to happen, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. He's one of us. There's really no other way. What an elegant solution. If Jesus had descended from heaven in all of His glory, we would never believe that He was human. Had He been born just like every other human being, we would never believe He was God. But He was born in a way, born of a virgin, at just the right time. And in doing so, He assures us that I'm one of you. And in doing this, He, he answers this innate longing that we have. More than anything else, I believe we want to be understood. More than anything else, we want to know that we're known. And Jesus assures, of the, assures us of this in His birth. We want to be understood. We want to be known. Jesus is quite acquainted with the human condition. He knows exactly what it's like to be you. I may not know what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to be you. There's no struggle that you have that He's not intimately familiar with. Psalm 139.3, uh, the psalmist says, you are acquainted with all my ways. And at the time he was writing that, he's saying, Father, you can look down and you can see everything that I'm doing. You are aware of everything that's going on. But now we read this verse, you are acquainted with all my ways. And we see a different meaning there. Now we see Jesus having come and lived in the flesh. He is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. There is no experience that we can experience that we can say, Jesus, you don't know what it's like. Because He was here. He was one of us. He was born of a woman. He says, you are acquainted in all my ways. There's no scenario in which you might find yourself that Christ cannot adequately identify with. And notice in the present tense, I put it this way in the notes, Jesus is, is, present tense, acquainted with the human condition. Because He took on flesh, He is currently, presently, knows with intimacy whatever flesh struggle you might be enduring this holiday season. And what might you be enduring? Uh, have you sorrow this year? Jesus was a man of sorrows. We know this from Isaiah 53. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. He was despised. He was rejected. He was unesteemed. Do you have sorrow? Jesus knows what that's like. He feels your sorrow. Do you suffer loss this Christmas? One of the only verses recorded in uh, Scripture where we see Jesus crying. There's a few, but one of the only ones, one of the very few, is where He's at a funeral. And He's weeping, weeping for the loss of Lazarus. Perhaps you've experienced such a loss. Maybe over the last year, you've experienced such a loss. And this Christmas season, you feel like everyone else is rejoicing and enjoying and laughing and singing and no one gets what you're going through jesus gets it jesus felt that cold numbness of a loved one's absence he knows what it's like and in the darkness when you're laying in bed at night and the tears come jesus is with you and he too is crying with you he knows what it's like uh, perhaps there's a different sort of loss, maybe a separation that you face this year. Maybe for the first time you're an empty nester 
or maybe you just have a child that's been married and is now gone, or for, for whatever reason, maybe there's someone under quarantine or just a job, whatever it might be, you are suffering separation this year. Maybe like Jesus who was hanging upon, upon the cross looking down at His mother, maybe you're facing your own death and you recognize, I've got people I'm leaving behind here, I want to take care of them, I, I don't know how to do that. Jesus know what it's, knows what it's like to be pressed for time, to make those last minute preparations, to make sure that each one will be cared for in your absence. There's no situation that Jesus hasn't felt. Jesus is well acquainted with human weakness. We can all identify with human weakness. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, it says that He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Did Jesus know weakness while He was on earth? Of course He knew weakness. We see times when He was exhausted. We see times when He was hungry. On the cross, He called out, He said, I thirst. He knows what weakness is. You know, those simple points of weakness, exhaustion, hunger, thirst, aren't we so much more prone to sin when we're in those scenarios? Jesus knows what that's like. Just this week, I was, I, I, I guess I was all of those. I was exhausted, I was hungry, I was thirsty, and I was sitting down and I snapped at my wife in a sinful way, and she was very gracious in how she responded to it. But, you know, when I think about why, why did I snap like that? I didn't want her to change anything that she was doing, I didn't want her to fix anything that was going on. All I wanted was just a little appreciation that you know what I'm going through. I want you to know that I've worked this much. I want you to know how hard I'm doing this. And, and you know, she did know that, but more than that, Jesus knows that. Jesus knows what it's like to work and work and work and just need some time to get away. He knows what it's like in that point of exhaustion to be tempted. Again, in Hebrews 4.15, it says that He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses Tempted as we are, yet without sin. He faced far more temptation than you or I ever will. And yet it says tempted as we are. This wasn't a cheat. This isn't uh, not similarly uh, tempted, but genuinely as we face it, as we feel it, as we fight it. So too, because Jesus was born of a woman, because He was actually one of us, a bro- He calls you brothers and sisters to Him. He knows what it's like to face it to fight it, to feel that temptation. You know, I'm reminded of um, Vladimir Putin, uh, the president of Russia. Is that his position? President, I think, is what they call him. He really has a crafted image. He wants to, he wants to present two things at the same time. He wants to present like, I'm just a common man. I'm one of you guys. But then also he wants to present, but I'm like super duper better than all of you also. And so, like, there was this time when he went scuba diving in the Mediterranean Sea, just an average guy, and all the cameras are there, and he drops down right next to the dock, and what does he come up with? Some ancient artifacts that he supposedly found while he was down there for 15 minutes, you know. Those weren't planted at all, I'm sure. I'm sure he really found those. No one had looked there before. Um, But I remember seeing this video where he was playing hockey with a professional Russian hockey team. And he was up there skating around with them, and he scored, guess how many goals? He scored. He was like 55, 60 at the time. Eight goals he scored. And when you look at it, the defense was just kind of, you know, they're just kind of standing like this. They're letting him go around them and score. But he was trying to communicate, I'm one of you. I'm a man of the people. 
but look how much better I am than all of you. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm one of you, I'm one of you. But he didn't get off easy. He wasn't facing uh, you know, professionals that were holding up. They were really giving, Jesus was facing temptation with its full force. Satan did not let up. The flesh would not relent. The world did not go easy on him. He faced more temptation than you and I face. And yet, without sin, he knows what it's like to face temptation because he was born of a woman. He's acquainted with your condition and mine. What about the frustration of maybe misunderstanding? Does Jesus know what it's like to be misunderstood? Constantly. Remember as a boy, he went to the temple and he was reasoning with the, the priests there. And his parents came, what are you doing? They, they th- you know, he was missing. You, you think I'm, you, you don't understand. I'm about my father's business. I'm not going to meet the expectations that you might have for me. I have my father's expectations. And then when he's sparring with the religious leaders constantly, them failing to grasp his purpose, his message, his intent, his heart. He was always misunderstood. Even with his own disciples, rarely did they get it. They were confused by what he was saying. And think about the contrast to when Jesus, before he had a body, he was in heaven, perfect unity with the Son, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. There was no, there was no barrier in understanding. If the Father knew it, the Son knew it, the Spirit knew it. If the Spirit felt it, the Son felt it, the Father felt it. And then he comes into flesh and he experiences what you and I experience all the time. Ah, Man, you know what? That didn't come out the way. They didn't receive that the way I was hoping to give it. There's misunderstanding there. I wish only if they knew my heart. If I could just, if they can, if I could just open it up and they can see my heart, they would understand. But as humans, we recognize there's barriers in communication. There's misunderstanding, and it causes vexation and frustration. Surely Jesus wouldn't. There's some things about the human condition that Jesus can't identify with, right? What about just the fact that we're human and we have to submit and obey God? Surely he doesn't, have to, he doesn't understand what that's like. Well, I commend to you Hebrews 5.8 where it says that he learned obedience. As a son, Jesus learned obedience. Some people have a hard time with that. How did Jesus learn obedience? He didn't move from a state of disobedience to obedience. He moved from a state of not being, not being required to obey anyone to a state of now learning what it's like to obey. He knows what it's like to submit to authority. He knows what he submitted to his mother. One of the first miracles, his very first miracle recording, submitted to his mother. Seemingly, again, you know what, this isn't my preference, but I'm going to do what my mother is asking me to do. Constantly submitting to the Father. He knows what it's like to submit. He's not asking you to do anything that he hasn't done. What about this? Surely he does not understand the guilt, the shame that I feel when I've let God down, when I sin. That's a feeling that is foreign to Jesus. He can't identify with me in that moment, can he? Well, it says that he experienced shame on the cross. He knows what shame feels like. Not that he earned it, but you earned it for him. He knows the shame of losing all friendships. He knows the shame of those that were closest to him abandoning him. The shame of being stripped naked publicly, of being beaten, of being hung, accused of a crime that he never committed. He knows that shame. He knows 
the feeling of guilt. Right here in Galatians, just look at the previous chapter. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that He became sin for us. Oh, He knows what guilt feels like. He knows what shame feels like. He knows what sin feels like. Totally foreign to anything He ever earned or deserved, but He knows what it feels like because He was able to come in human flesh and take your guilt, your shame, uh, and your sin upon Himself. He came as a baby born of a woman. But all of that was more than just Jesus simply being in a position where he can where he can say I know how you feel. There's more at play than just I can sympathize with you. No, what is more here and we see this in Galatians chapter 4 is he joined our experience so that we might join his. He suffered our condition so that we might be healed to His condition. He uh, lowered Himself to our position so that we might ascend to His. This is what we see in Galatians chapter 4. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. In Galatians chapter 4, we see this played out in, in three major ways. Let's go ahead and read our passage. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God." This exchange that we experience because of Christmas, because He was able to come and be born of a woman, the first one we see is He was born that we might be adopted. He chose to go through physical birth so that we could go through a spiritual adoption. In verse 4 it says He uh, he was born of a woman. The second time it says He was born under the law. Born twice. And then at the end of that verse it says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Those two are connected together. Because He was born, we have the opportunity to be adopted. And there's different discussions about what exactly Paul had in mind when he talked about adoption. Was he thinking through Jewish adoption, Roman adoption, Hebrew adoption, Greek adoption? There's, there's, there's a case could be made for any one of those. All of those are valid. But here's the common ground. Basically, we know this. With adoption, you have a new family. And with the new family comes new loyalties. That's where he's driving at in this passage. He's saying, I came, I endured human birth, I became a human so that you could be adopted into God's family. And with this new family now, you have new loyalties. We know this is true. Look at uh, when he references what our old family was in verse 2. I'm sorry, in verse 3. It says, in the same way we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And again, there's a lot of discussion about what this means. To me, I think the most clearest explanation is when he's talking about the elementary principles of the world, he's just talking about the naturalistic world. 
before we were adopted, that all we had was just the natural world, what we could see, feel, hear, taste, smell. That was it. And so when he talks about the elementary principles, the basics of the world, I think he's talking about what we think of, even when we think of the, 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 element, the table of elements, only they had much fewer elements back then. They had earth, wind, fire, water. And by the time Paul was here, they probably were recognizing some of the celestial uh, bodies as elements, the, the sun, the stars. And also, we think of the elements as in a non-personal way, but they personified these elements. They linked them in their mind to gods. That's why planets have the names of gods. And and they recognized and, and they worshiped this idea. And Paul would recognize those aren't really gods, those are demons. That's why down in verse 8, Paul says, I think he's p- picking up this idea again. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles? of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. And there's the key question right there. He's saying you were saved out of this perspective where you were just kind of in bondage to the natural world. You lived, you died, you were uh, governed by the urges, by your chemistry, by your genes, by your habitat, by your environment. You were saved out of all of that and you have come to know God. And he makes it clear, it's not just you joining a team. It's not that you've come to a different kind of philosophy because not only have you come to know God, but you've become known by God. It's a reciprocal relationship. And he's saying, if all that is true, here's the key question. Uh, how can you go back to the, again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? How could you possibly go back? You've been adopted. You have new loyalties, a new family. How can you go back? So what he's saying is, Jesus says, I took on flesh so that you could be adopted into the family of God. I took on this nature so you could have a new nature. And we do have a new nature. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 3, Paul is rebuking the Corinthians and he says, don't behave as if you're merely human. He's saying something has been added to your ingredients. Now you're no longer just human. Now you have something else. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, it tells us what it is. You've been given the divine nature. We are partakers of the divine nature. We have the Holy Spirit. The, the best part of who God is is now the best part of who we are. And in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, it says that we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but no longer. Why? Because the old has passed away and the new has come. So you put this together and God's saying, we've, we've adopted you. So now, you're more than what you once were. You're new. You are changed. And given all that, why would you go back to the old ways? Why would you go back to living as if you're not adopted? Why would you abandon this higher calling that you've been awarded? So he was born that we might be adopted. But it goes deeper. I would also say that he was born under the law that we might be freed from the law. He was born under the law that we might be freed from the law. Again, look at 
chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is just the right time that He, he was the transition from law to grace. And He did that so that we who were under the law might receive adoptions as sons. We are freed from being under the law. Go back just a few verses to the end of chapter 3 and we see this explored a little more fully. Verse 23 of chapter 3 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. So with those three words, we see what our relationship with the law was. First of all, we were held captive by the law. That means it was it stood as a guard or a sentinel made to restrain us. That was the purpose of the law, to restrain us from going too far out into sin. It says that we were imprisoned. That means we were confined to a, this small space. I don't know if you've ever spent time in prisons or jails before. I've spent quite a bit of time uh, I've never been put in jail, but ministering to people in jail up in Wisconsin, we went to uh, really a, a, a renowned uh, penitentiary that was high security. And I'm telling you, it is not pleasant when you are imprisoned. All your liberties are stripped away. The enjoyments of life are removed and you're, you, you can't even move around. When you go in there and, you, and just in the movies when you hear that door clank shut behind you, I'm telling you, when you are there, you feel it. You feel it in your soul. And uh, guys that are in prison, uh, who is mostly what I deal with, they do some strange things to try to cope. You know, they're not allowed cigarettes to smoke them, but they are allowed tobacco. Uh, but they like to smoke their tobacco, and so what they do is they chew their tobacco. This is pretty common. This is going to gross you out. They chew their tobacco, but they save it. Everyone is not allowed to spit their tobacco out just anywhere they want. They have to spit it out into a communal jar. And then they press that tobacco through a sock so that it's all emptied of the spit. And then they'll roll that tobacco, roll it in paper, and then they'll light it with, a, with, a, um, with an outlet, an electric outlet. And it's not pleasant living, but that's, that's the way they do it. And there's a lot of examples of how unpleasant it is when you are imprisoned. And Paul is speaking to us collectively, not as much as individuals, I mean, kind of as individuals, but looking at us as, a, as an entire body of believers dating all the way back to Israel. He says, one, at one time, you were all imprisoned under the law. It was meant to restrain you, to keep you from wandering so far off into sin. It was meant to hold you captive. It was not pleasant. Not only that, though, there's a little bit of a positive aspect. It says it stood as a guardian. You see that? Uh, so then the law was our guardian, verse 24, until Christ came. So we're here we have the expectation of release or promotion. We see this again down in chapter 4 and verse 1. An heir, uh, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under the guardian's and managers until the date set by the father. And so just like a father with a large estate would have a son, and the son is the inheritor of everything, but at some point he's still treated like a child. And the law was our guardian. The law was that which kept watch over us. Until, it says in verse 24, Christ came. When Christ came, born under the law, born of a woman, then we were released 
from the expectations of the law. How, what was Christ's relationship to the law? We know what our relationship to the law was. What was Christ's relationship? Well, He was sinless under the law. Remember at one point He asked His accusers, can any of you prove any of sin for me? No, you can't. Remember when they came to uh, stone the woman caught in adultery? He said, let him who has not sinned cast the first stone. One by one they all left. He was the only one remained. He was the only one that had the right to throw a stone even though He didn't do it. So he was sinless under the law. We saw some of that uh, a couple weeks ago as well. Not only was he sinless under the law, but in Matthew 5.17 he says, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. This is important. He didn't just keep the law perfectly. He didn't come to buck the system. That's a popular... People that don't know Jesus today like to describe him. Oh, he was kind of like a hippie, you know. He, he was defying authority. No, no, that's not it at all. He didn't come just to buck the system. He didn't come just to completely submit to the system. He came to fulfill the law. That means everything in the law was superficially pointing to a depth that Jesus attained. The law was all pointing to a means of righteousness that was imperfectly kept under the law, but perfectly attained through Jesus Christ. And so, because He was born that we might be adopted, our response is to have loyalty to that adoption. And because He was born under the law that we might be freed from the law, our response is what? Our response is faith. Look back at verse 23 and look how often faith comes up. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So we see faith mentioned again and again and again. Are you living by faith? right now. Living by faith means you are not dependent on any other source of righteousness. Living by faith means I'm walking by faith, not by sight. I'm leaning on His understanding, not my own. Living by faith means I distrust my own feelings. When, you know, I, I am convinced there is far too much guilt in the church that does not come from the Holy Spirit at all. There's people that don't realize that, you know what, sometimes my heart condemns me, but God is greater than my heart. And faith is, I'm not going to live under this burden of guilt that doesn't belong to me, that Christ died to remove from me. I'm not going to live under someone else's guilt that they're trying to force upon me. I'm going to live by faith. And when I fall into sin, I'm not going to you know, have my own little prescribed duration of feeling very guilty and bad, and then I'm going to start walking. No, faith means I'm going to have gutsy guilt and when I sin, I'm going to wreck. I'm going to confess the sins to God. I'm going to repent of the sins. And instantly, I'm going to cast that upon Jesus. And I'm going to recognize that He has absolved me of all my guilt. That's what faith is. Faith is, I can walk in righteousness. By faith, I do have the ability to live righteously. There's so much despair, I think, in the church. Well, I've got this sin nature. There's no way I can ever be good enough. Faith means I have the righteousness of Christ expressing Himself through me. And so grace is I will be victorious. I'm not going to just mope around, live in sin, blame the flesh, hope for Christ to come back. No, He wants you through faith to be victorious today. That was part of Him coming in the flesh. He was born in the flesh that we might be adopted. He was born under the law that we might be freed from the law 
And thirdly and finally, He was born in the flesh that we might be born in the Spirit. He took on... He was born in the flesh so He could die in the flesh that we might live in the Spirit. And we see that in our passage as well where it says, because God, in verse 6, and because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Jesus said that which is of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And He's saying, you have been born of the Spirit. You could not be born of the Spirit if I was not first born of the flesh, Jesus says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 44, it says, that which is sown, it is sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body. The first Adam, that is Adam all the way back in Genesis, became a living being. The last Adam, that is Jesus, became a life-giving Spirit. So I ask you this morning, if you cannot call out Abba Father, if you can't come to Jesus as in a spiritual in spiritual life, you know what? I, I just I just fear, I wonder, I worry that maybe there's someone that knows, you know you don't have spiritual life, but you've been here so long. Everyone assumes you have spiritual life. And now you think that moment's passed. I'll figure it out some other time. But if I just come up and ask someone or tell someone, hey, I, I got saved today. They're going to judge me. They're not, or maybe I don't understand it well enough. Listen, as miraculous as Christ's coming in human flesh was on Christmas Day, just as miraculous this Christmas season, if you were to be born in the Spirit, if you were to come for the first time and say, I, I truly, just not come to me, Come to Jesus for the first time. Come to the manger and let it lead you to the cross and say, truly, I depend on nothing else but Jesus Christ. I'm not holding out any hope in my own righteousness whatsoever. There's no amount of effort I can do. My pedigree, my heritage, nothing in my past qualifies me for heaven. I am totally desperate without Jesus Christ. And all it takes is that that spiritual, silent prayer calling out to Jesus saying, would you forgive me my sins? Would you heal me of my unrighteousness? Would you absolve me of my guilt? I place myself in you. Would you receive me? Would you fill me with your Spirit? If you haven't done that, today is the day. Today is the day. And and you know what? Sometimes people mark that. When we sing a song at the end, they come forward, they kneel down, they say a prayer. Maybe they wander off somewhere else and say a prayer. You, don't, you can do that. You don't have to do that. But here's the point. If you have not committed your life to Christ, if you have not asked Him to forgive you, today is the day. The world is drawing near. Every day that passes is a day closer to the end. The world is not going to keep going on and on like it always has. And now more than ever, we're reminded that no one is guaranteed any amount of time. Today may be your last day. It is time to come to Jesus, recognize that He was born in the flesh, that we might be born in the Spirit. So we're going to send you away today to celebrate Christmas. We're going to send you off with a song. We're going to sing, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. And uh, someone was razzing me this morning already. There's so many verses, and it came upon a midnight clear. Made me feel bad for doing it, but we're going to sing all the verses. And here's, here's why. Just I want you to really... Listen to the words as you sing them, as you read them. Look at the words. I think that some of these words are going to hit you in a way, maybe this year in 2020, some of the words of this song are going to hit you in a way that they haven't in years past. 
I think about it where it says, All ye beneath life's crushing load, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Doesn't that? That describes the state of the world right now. But this song calls us, O rest beside the weary road. That's my prayer for you this Christmas, that this would be a week of rest, or maybe it's just a couple of days of rest, whatever you're able to carve out, but that it would be real rest, not physical rest, but spiritual rest, spiritual hope. When we look at the birth of Christ, we cannot help but also look at He's going to be coming back. He's going to rescue us from all of this. And we worry and we think and we plan and we strategize and we question, what are we to do if this happens or if this happens? If COVID lasts another two years? If America, you know, who knows what's going to happen? We don't know any of that. But we do know this, that none of our hope is in any of that. We do know this, that Christ is coming back. And if we can just kind of regain that hope and that vision this Christmas, I think we'll be doing well. Let's stand and sing.